This morning, we're resuming our sermon series on the New Testament book of Acts. We started it in January, went through the spring, and then hit the pause button as the summer was beginning. And uh, so I want to briefly point us to some background on Acts, and then we're going to jump into today's passage. Acts was written by Luke to describe the early church under the leadership of the apostles. But it's an Acts, uh, it's a part two narrative. It's really a sequel because he had written a former book, which he alludes to in the very first verse of the book of Acts. He says, in my former book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. That former book is the gospel of Luke. And if that former book describes what Jesus began to do and to teach, and now Jesus is back in heaven at the Father's side, the question is, how is he continuing to do and to teach? If he's gone, and the answer is the book of Acts, the answer is that Jesus is uh, employing his spirit within followers of Jesus Christ, believers, Christians, to do the work that he began, to continue to do and to teach. The traditional name of the book is Acts of the Apostles, but we said that really a better name would be the Acts of the Holy Spirit, because if you want to learn who that third person of the Trinity is, The best place to come is the book of Acts. You're not going to get a dictionary entry that says, Holy Spirit, these are the names and and this is how he works. But to see him in real history operating through the lives of God's people is the best way to see the Holy Spirit. Um, But the Spirit never draws attention to himself. That's why it's very hard to do a study on the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's purpose is to exalt Jesus. And so any time the name of Jesus is exalted, the, the work of Jesus is proclaimed, that's a sign that the Spirit has been here and has been at work. Jesus uh, continues to direct all of history, even though he's gone. And that's how we got the sense of the graphic. The director's chair is in the spotlight, but there's no one sitting in it. He's returned to the Father's right hand, and yet... He is no less at work directing all the affairs of history, in particular, the efforts of his people. His last words to his disciples uh, include this prediction. Really, we could call it a promise in chapter 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And it really outlines how first century church history will unfold. It happens exactly the way Jesus says. We first see the beginnings of the church in Jerusalem, chapters 1 through 7, and then we see because of persecution, ironically, the gospel goes out into the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria. And finally, the last section of the book of Acts is the section we're starting today, chapter 13 through the end. The gospel will go to the ends of the known world. Let's read. Acts chapter 13, I'll read selectively. Listen carefully. These are God's words. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. 
John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. Verse 13, from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to, companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. Verse 26. Brothers, children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news, what God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. The fact that God raised him from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to God, a promise to David. So it is stated elsewhere, you will not yet let your holy one see decay. For when David had served God's purposes in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at this first missionary journey, we pray that you would unsettle us, that we would see the work to which you call us, that you would send us out on mission to proclaim the best of news this world has ever heard, that Jesus has come and he has risen. We pray this in his name. Amen. We're talking about mission this morning, because that's what chapter 13 is about, into chapter 14, the gospel beyond borders. And uh, we'll look at three things, um, proclamation, opposition, and then resurrection. First, proclamation. Verse 1 Uh, tells us that the action has shifted from Jerusalem to Antioch, up the Mediterranean coast from Jerusalem. This is the new base of operations from which the gospel will be launched to Asia Minor and then to the rest of Europe to the west. And right away, you you can uh, take a look at this map. I'll point out a few things on it in a few minutes. But right away in Acts chapter 13, we see the familiar habits of the early church. Back in the spring, uh, I said this, if, if there's any formula for how the church should respond to brokenness in our world, whether it's the community college shootings in Oregon or Syrian refugees continuing to stream into Europe, some unwanted, or um, the natural disaster that unfolded in the Bahamas and the flooding in the Carolinas. Whatever the brokenness is, if there's a formula for how the church should respond, it's this that we see over and over in Acts as a cycle, a pattern. We pray... The Spirit fills, we proclaim Christ. 
It's what God calls us to do in, in response to brokenness. And here it is again in verses 2 to 3. And now the Spirit is actively sending people out on mission. This is um, known as Paul's first missionary journey. That's what the map tries to um, depict. And Luke, the author, of all the things that he could highlight, is, is going to emphasize three scenes, three um, encounters that Paul has. Um, First, I, I skipped this little section, Paul preaches to a Roman governor on the island of Cyprus. That's number one. Uh, it happens to be where Barnabas is from, and that's where they go first. Secondly, uh, they go um, up to land, um, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and preach in synagogues in Pisidian Antioch, not to be confused with Syrian Antioch, where they left, and Iconium. And then thirdly, they preached to a pagan crowd in Lystra and Derby. Ministry to a ruler, ministry to religious people, ministry to more secular people, as if to emphasize with the first ever missions trip that the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. Why? Because everyone is afflicted with the spiritually terminal condition of sin, and the only antidote is faith in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Well, the Spirit tells the church in verse 2, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And we might ask, well, what's the work of God? The answer over and over in Acts is this. Doing God's work means proclaiming God's word. Doing God's work means proclaiming God's word. No surprise then that the main passage uh, that I read this morning is Paul's first ever recorded sermon. He's doing God's work by proclaiming God's word. And by the way, um, in verse 9, uh, we're told that um, Saul was also called Paul. And from here on out, that's the name that the author Luke uses to refer to him, Paul. Saul was a Hebrew name. Paul is a Greek name. And it's not because of his conversion, and now he has a new identity, although that's true. It's because his emphasis of ministry now shifts from reaching the Jews to reaching the Gentiles. It's a more familiar name. He's among the people, and he's going to use every means to his advantage to make a connection as he goes more and more into the Greek or Gentile world. I want you to consider two questions, just briefly, about mission proclamation. Two questions. First, do you know the message that God calls you to proclaim? Do you have that tool in your tool belt? Do you, do you know how to point people to Jesus? You know, what's interesting is the Quran, the holy book of Muslims, refers to Jews and Christians as people of the book. That label recognizes, it assumes some grounding in the scriptures. It assumes that we find relevant and important and foundational to our lives as Jews and Christians the, the revealed will of God in the scriptures. Do you know what's in here? If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, this reveals to you the most essential truths, the, the most important answers to the most important questions you could ever ask. Who is Jesus and what has he done? In his 30-some years of walking this earth, who is Jesus and what did he do that's relevant to my life today? This has those answers. And we would commend uh, this book to you as the Word of God, not just literature. 
If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you call yourself a Christian and you don't know what's in here, the best way I can put it is there, there's, there's something missing. There's a fundamental disconnect. There's, there's an unhealth, spiritually speaking, that needs to be addressed before it becomes more critical. Or, or your faith is mere religion and not true salvation at all. Because one way to describe this is that this is the love letter of God to His people, a people who don't deserve that love and mercy and compassion, but God has condescended, John used that word, reached down to us and uh, makes this relationship of love possible. Why would we not want to soak in, marinate in these words of love and know this God who has reconciled us to Himself? One of the great challenges of uh, the modern day with all this technology, I think, is a, um, part of the reason for this disconnect. And, and it's this. People don't think anymore. And I would say at the top of the list of why people don't think anymore is people don't read anymore. There's little reflection. There's no meditation, let alone wrestling with uh, the big questions of life and meaning and purpose uh, we just flip through Facebook. We look at pictures. We watch 30-second video clips. Um, we, we absorb mindless entertainment. And relating all too often is limited to what we just absorbed at the superficial level. You know, did you see that cat video of it, the cat jumping over the ball? I, I pick on cat videos because I don't like cats. But, you know, fill in the blank of, of what is just not significant, but we spend too much of our day mindlessly consuming we don't think because we've trained our brains to sort of exist on fast food information that is superficial, that might give a quick hit, but doesn't sustain and it doesn't nourish. The Bible passage that accompanied our first grace story back in uh, September included this statement, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We, we grab hold of every worldview, every idea, every song, every favorite line in a movie, every poem, every um, value system, every decision that government makes, and we uh, take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. The only way you do that is if you know what the mind of Christ is to begin with so that you can evaluate it. That's the work that God calls His people to do, assess um, evaluate, think um, with the mind of Christ, with the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. If you have any desire to have a relationship with God, if you want to experience spiritual power, if you want, if you, maybe you put it in these words, if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, then you need to commit to understanding better what God's heart is like, what He has spoken to His people. It's all here. You know, uh, here's one way I'd put it. Pure experience and feeling without any grounding in the truth is at best like burning newspaper in your fireplace. A quick flash of heat and light and then nothing. But on the other hand, pure emphasis on truth and knowledge with no desire to see and experience the power of God in your life is like a flashlight in the fireplace. You have light, but it's still cold. You need both. When you have both the heat of experience and the light of God's Word, then you're equipped 
to experience and then pour out the power of God. Second question about mission proclamation. Um, Not only do you know the message, have you read God's Word? Can you repeat it? But uh, will you get off the couch and jump into the game? The first verse of our text says, in the church at Antioch. That's the Greek word ekklesia. And uh, part of the word ekklesia has the word that means to call out. And so what is the church? It is the gathering of God's people, those who are called out by God to do what? To do His work, which is proclaiming His word, which is to get on mission. Author and pastor J.D. Greer says this, I've heard the average church in our day described like a football game. 22 people in desperate need of rest on the field, surrounded by 22,000 in desperate need of exercise. And I think it'd actually be fairer to say 22 guys playing football, 11 on 11, in desperate need of rest, and 22 million stuffing their faces with tortilla chips and wings, watching on the couches all around the world. Uh, He says, that's kind of like the church. (laughs) Do you need to get off the couch and jump into the game. For some of you, it doesn't have profound spiritual beginnings. It might just mean get engaged. I don't share this to make anyone feel guilty, but um, there's a stark reality that we face as ministry leaders and staff. Um, It it starts with observing that the second service, you guys, there are 25 to 40% more of you on average on a given Sunday than the first service. In other words, a lot more people. But the ministry leaders struggle, like Jackie Chang standing in the back, to recruit four ushers for one Sunday and one PowerPoint person in the booth and a handful of nursery uh, assistants to help hold a baby and enable parents to worship without distraction. Some of you just need to get in the game. So for some of you, that, that's a, a spiritual step you can take to say, I'm going to serve. I don't know what my gifts are. I don't know what my passions are in terms of, I, I don't know how to proclaim God's word, to do God's work. And we'd say to you, that's okay. Can you hand out a bulletin and smile? Can you, can you get to know folks and give instructions that maybe, maybe you just need to get off the couch and get in the game and yes, go, ho- go, go home with sore hamstrings, but have a, have a sense that, you know what? Um, I contributed, and I want to know more. I, I want to contribute in more real ways. You, you start off squirting water, you know, through face masks, and maybe you get into the game eventually as a player. For some of you, you're already engaged at some level, and, and maybe the growth in Christ's step for you is to realize that your calling has nothing to do with your profession has nothing to do with how you make a living, how you spend Monday through Friday. Your calling, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, is to do God's work by proclaiming God's word. That's the same for every Christian. You know, the term evangelize is not a technical term. It simply means proclaim good news. That's doing God's work. And you might say, I know his word, I just don't know how to do that. And I'd say, then you need to be in adult Christian ed, 10 a.m. for the next five Sundays, as Mo Hannah and John Chung, our worship leader and elder, conduct a, a workshop 
on evangelism. Come and be equipped. Secondly, mission opposition. This will be a lot shorter. (laughs) I, I could summarize early church history with a few statements. Jesus is king. He sends his spirit to work in and through his people to do his work, and nothing can stop this world-changing phenomenon. And that would be true. But it'd be missing something pretty consistently um, um, present in early church history, and and in fact today as well. And that would be the reality of opposition and struggle and persecution. For example, um, a section I skipped, verses 6 through 12, a sorcerer who happens to be a false prophet, first thing Paul and Barnabas do, they want to meet the the Roman ruler on the island of Cyprus, and this guy gets in the way. He tries to stop them, disrupt their plans. They take care of him uh, with the spirit power, but opposition right away. And then um, up in verse 27, in the heart of Paul's sermon, he reminds his audience that the people of Jerusalem and the rulers rejected Jesus in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, even the Messiah, the end of his life, all opposition. By the end of chapter 13, the missionaries not only get kicked out of town, they're driven out of the region. Don't come back. And even Paul's personal grace story has um, this story of prior violent opposition to Jesus and his disciples. He was the chief persecutor of Christians. Um, back in uh, Damascus, also in uh, the area of Antioch in Syria. That pattern continues throughout Acts into the year 2015. Why? Because any advance of the gospel stirs up opposition to Jesus. Any advance of the gospel stirs up opposition to Jesus. It shouldn't surprise us if we remember from Paul's letter to the Ephesians that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against spiritual forces of darkness. There's a battle over souls, and doing God's work by proclaiming God's word is, is not just providing an alternate theory for how to live life well. It's not, it's not just a good set of advice, you know, like listen to Dr. Oz instead of Dr. Phil, or read Deepak Chopra instead of Eckhart Tolle. I don't recommend reading either, by the way, if you're going to read a book. Uh, don't pick up one of those. Uh, but gospel proclamation is instead... Um, defined by what is underneath all of history at a cosmic level, which is light battling darkness. Life versus death, God versus Satan, the people of God versus those who are on Satan's side. There's a battle, and no new ground is captured without um, some violence, spiritually speaking. You know, on, on November 15th, we're dedicating our services to uh, participating in the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. We'll focus on the plight of Christians uh, all around the world, in certain hot spots in particular, who are suffering and even dying for their faith. Uh, Recently, here in the U.S., governmental decisions have made us um, um, look ahead and anticipate that there might be um, significant persecution in our free country against Christians. But that possibility doesn't, or even probability, pales in comparison with the reality that these Christians around the world are suffering now to the point of death. And I can't help wondering as I see that contrast, I can't help wondering if Christians and churches in some of those areas 
are being persecuted because they're that much more dangerous to Satan and his team. Whereas complacent Christians who, there are a lot of us in North America and Western Europe, complacent Christians who do not attack the gates of hell, who are not about doing God's work by proclaiming God's word, just aren't that dangerous. Why would Satan send uh, numbers of his army, if you will, to deal with us over here when folks in some of these hot spots are far more threatening to the cause of evil and darkness? Well, uh, Paul and Barnabas are dangerous opponents to Satan, and they get it. They feel it. Mission has opposition. Lastly, mission resurrection. And yes, with an exclamation point. That's the main theme of Paul's sermon. It's the reality that gives servants of the king boldness even in the face of persecution. When Paul goes to the heart of his message, I found it interesting that he actually doesn't even explicitly mention the cross. It's almost as if he dances around it. You know, they didn't recognize Jesus. They condemned him. Um, they had him executed. They carried out all that was written about him. You know what was said. And they took him down from the tree, you know, that piece of wood. Now, I'm not implying that Paul avoids the cross. He's actually the apostle of the cross. In his first letter to the Corinthians, he says, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. But it happens to be that in his first sermon ever, he's not about focusing on the cross. And he's about focusing on a different theme, which he says seven different times in two ways. Jesus has been raised from the dead. Four times explicitly, three times, I would say, uh, sort of backhandedly. Not, 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 to, not, to, um, not that there's anything malicious in that, but, you know, he didn't decay like every other human being, including his forefather David, who rotted after he died Jesus didn't rot. Why? Because God raised him from the dead. He's more alive than he ever has been. That's what Paul is interested in highlighting. T Tim Keller shared this thought that made me go, hmm, because I'm not sure if it's um, always the case, but I think there's general truth to it. He said, when we're young, we tend to look at the cross more so because we crave atonement for mistakes. We know how we've messed up, and we need to know that we're not defined by our failures. But as we get older, we end up looking more to the resurrection because we're comforted in knowing that the end brings a new beginning, and resurrection means the restoration of what you've lost. That's far more poignant and powerful at the end of your life, right? Uh, what you lost. Maybe the gaining of what you always waited for and never received. Resurrection means God gives you the richest, most valuable gifts. We just had the privilege uh, throughout September of hearing three grace stories. That's our name for testimonies, real-life stories from people sitting next to you in the rows, sharing about pain and brokenness and struggle, but also about their, how they've tasted God's gospel grace in healing. And we, we, we emphasize each week that these are not stories that are nicely cleaned up 
uh, put in a little package and tied with a little bow and only then presented to you because they're nice enough to be acceptable in church. We've said, these stories are messy and these stories are not over. But here's the end of every grace story. Here's the climactic consummation of every grace story. It's resurrection. Not just Jesus' historical resurrection that applied to him because he was dead and now he's raised, but his applying of that resurrection power, that very same power that raised Jesus from the dead to your life if you trust that Jesus' death was in your place and Jesus' rising from the dead means you will have victory over death forever as well. And so resurrection means, if you were here, uh, you, you might recognize these illusions. If not, go to our website and you can listen to these three stories, graceredeemer.com. But resurrection means that Chin's mother will be made new, that death will not have the final word. Resurrection means that God's perfect promises will be fulfilled and that any sense of loss or pain that Karen feels now will be completely undone. Resurrection means that she'll gain something. More importantly, she'll gain someone greater than anything or anyone she has ever longed for, and that is the bridegroom Jesus. Resurrection means for Daniel that he's not um, defined within his man-made walls by the brokenness of his upbringing and the isolation, but resurrection means that God is accomplishing gospel deconstruction in order to uh, build him back up in the image of the risen Savior Jesus, and that at the end of all time, Daniel will be within walls once again, walls that God has built in the new city of Jerusalem, the holy city, and there there will not be isolation. There will be perfect relationship because in the city will be God, the Father, and the Lamb, who is Jesus, in perfect relationship. Resurrection means that everything about you that is not the way it's supposed to be, that is uh, different than what you wish it could be, will be made new, according to God's perfect uh, wisdom, as you trust in this risen Savior, Jesus. As we close, um, I'm almost done reading uh, Dr. Adil Gawande's book, Being Mortal. Uh, Anne Levan had recommended that two Sundays ago during uh, Adult Christian Ed. Uh, in the book, he's examining aging, dying, and uh, the medical profession's um, interaction with these um, end-of-life events. And here's one conclusion that he draws. We all need a cause beyond ourselves. He says it doesn't necessarily bring happiness or freedom from suffering, but we need something beyond ourselves to make life endurable. And this is what he adds. Without it, that cause beyond ourselves, we have only our desires to guide us, and they are fleeting, capricious, and insatiable. The only way death is not meaningless is to see yourself as part of something greater, a family, a community, a society. As our time winds down, we have a deep need to identify purposes outside ourselves, that make living feel meaningful and worthwhile. Good wisdom. I don't know anything specific about his faith or his spirituality. I don't think he's a Christian. I think he probably would say he's a spiritual person, but I don't know anything, any specifics. And what I'd say about Dr. Gawande is, I think he gets close to the real answer, but it's not enough. The Apostle Paul, on the other hand, gets it in full when he writes this. 
If Christ has not been raised, 1 Corinthians 15, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. You know that game Jenga? You pull out the resurrection block and everything comes crashing down. That's what Paul's saying. It's all meaningless. Jesus might have died on the cross for your sins, but you know what? Death got him, and death will get you. But no, Jesus rose from the dead. Part two is, is uh, so essential to complete salvation, and now he is risen. Paul would say, uh, Dr. Gwande, with all due respect, we need more than a cause beyond ourselves. We need new life beyond this one. We need, need the renewal of all things. Because the best that this life has to offer was never good enough because we messed it up with our sin. We need God to renew it. We need resurrection. That's the theme of Paul's first ever recorded sermon. Resurrection, resurrection, resurrection. When he gets to the end of it, verse 38, he says, Therefore, I've established this core doctrine. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus... The forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified, is declared right in the eyes of the judge of all the earth. Despite our sin, despite all our flaws, through Jesus, everyone who believes is declared right, innocent, free from shame and guilt and condemnation. How in the world? Because sin has been paid for by Christ on his cross and because he walked out of that tomb on the third day, victorious over sin and its ultimate consequence. Do you believe this? This is why Saul and Barnabas traveled to the ends of the known earth, overflowing with the love of Christ to tell people the heart of God's word. He has come in Jesus He defeated sin and death, and he's coming again. That's our greatest hope. Let's pray toward those ends. Lord, you came to save, to seek the lost. You are coming again to finish what you began. We praise you, Jesus, King, Savior, Redeemer, Friend, Substitute, Victor over death. We honor and adore you. And we pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that we would overflow with the truth of your word. It's all about you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.